Hey, I'm Greg Johnson. I'm the lead pastor here at Restoration Church Wood Forest. We want to welcome you to our podcast today. Our mission at Restoration is to empower people to become world changers by releasing them into their full potential in the kingdom of God. So that happens in a lot of ways, but on Sunday mornings, we gather together, we worship passionately, and then we open the word of God and we explore the application and the truth of how God's word can be applied to our lives. And so today, I hope that you enjoy this message from God's word. Hey, we don't want this in any way to be a replacement for church. Let it be a supplement for you. But if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us any week at 8 o'clock, 945, and 1130. We hope you enjoy the message. Welcome to Restoration. Good morning, church. How we doing? Good. Uh, uh, all right. So I have a, a certain vibe about preaching. I'm not going to change it for you guys. So typically, uh, when I start sermons off, I say, what's up, fam? And the re- appropriate response is, what's up, fam, back, all right? So I'm going to say, what's up, fam? And you are going to be real gangster about this. You're going to say, what's up, fam, back. Y'all ready? Here we go. There's a lot of white faces out here. It's going to be great. Here we go. What's up, fam? Y'all were made for that. So good. So fantastic. Uh, like Greg mentioned, my name is Lo, uh, as well as my wife, Erica, my son, Maverick, and my daughter, Emerson. We've been a part of Restoration Church for about two years now, have been super blessed by what God is doing here in this house. Uh, echo what, every, what we say every single Sunday. We are just a little C, part of a big C church. This is not the only church God moves in. Amen. He's doing stuff all over this county, all over our country, all over our world. But there is a very special thing that God is doing in this place, not to negate what he's doing in other places, but we have been so blessed and privileged to be a part of this thing. Uh, As a follower of Jesus and vocational Christian, I'm a professional Christian. So I travel around, I preach the gospel in a whole bunch of college campuses and do conferences and tours and all that stuff. I do Jesus professionally. Like he's, he signs my W-2s. So that's, that's my thing. And so when I stopped working for a church, I've been working for churches since I was 19. When I stopped working for church, I was like, yo, I'm going to just like just do the travel ministry thing. And I'll use my Christian professionalism card to not go to church on Sunday. My wife was like, nah. And so we started looking for churches. And when we came here, I'm telling you guys, when we came here, we, we were really impressed with, you know, Greg is an amazing preacher. Uh, shout out to the boy. Um, we have a fantastic worship team. All that stuff was impressive. But that's not really what made us join the church. I'm sorry, you're cute, but it's not, not the reason. We were sitting right over there. I kid you not, we were sitting over there in that corner. Uh, it was kind of packed, and we, we barely made it inside. We got a seat, and there was, um, it was time for communion. And this family was praying together. And it was a dad and a mom, and they were praying over their kids. And they were laying hands on their kids, and they are blessing them. And they were serving them communion. And then the kids turn around and put their hands on their parents and start praying over them. I'm like, Jesus, do that in my life. Like, do that in my family. If that's what's happening here, if that's not a sign of good preaching, that's a sign of good pastoring. There's a difference there. That God is doing something great in the staff of this church, but it's also the body that he's moving in. So, so no, if you're here for the first time, you're in a great place. And God is doing something special in this house. So it's a gift to not only go here, but to share the gospel here is like icing on the cake. It's a good time. So we're going to be leaning into uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Last week, Greg was talking about how uh, we live a, a disciplined life. The invitation is to live a life on purpose with discipline. And today, Hebrews 12 is kind of wrapping that idea up and really taking the ante up a bit and saying, what does it mean to live a consecrated life? 
If the word consecration is new to you guys, it basically just means this thing belongs to God. That's all it means. To consecrate something is to say this person is not their own anymore. Now their whole life is given to the purposes of God. That's what they would do in the Old Testament for priests. They would uh, consecrate buildings in the Old Testament. They'd take a plot of land and say, you can't just build a Bucky's or a Walmart here. This space is something reserved for the presence of the Lord. It's a temple. It's a tabernacle. It belongs to God. They would consecrate and say, this is owned by Yahweh. And so for us to live consecrated lives, it's saying, Jesus, I am not my own anymore. I'm not just making you a a cool part of my life. You are now the point of my life. You're the entirety of who I am. And if you're like me, when you said yes to Jesus, you had that vibe. You were like, yes, Jesus, you can have every single part of me. You instantly have my heart. But if you're also like me, it takes some time before he also has my tongue (laughs) and my eyes, and my patience, and what time I go to bed. Like, I was a 2 a.m. guy all the time, and it just wasn't healthy. And so for me to say, God, you own me now, I'm saying I'm no longer my own. I'm not just giving my heart to you. I'm giving the entirety of who I am to you. I'm living a consecrated life. You own it now. What we've been singing this morning is let heaven come, invade this place, bring your kingdom here. And God's about that life, but, but he only does that with things that he consecrates. When you own it, that's when you have the right to decorate it. Yes. I've preached for my tablet. It used to look like my tablet. It was a gangster preacher tablet. And then my kids found out Bluey was on there, and Paw Patrol, and Peppa Pig, and now it looks like our tablet, right? It's cracked on the screen because my son made a drum out of it. Like, it doesn't look like it's just mine anymore. It's bedazzled on the back because, like, this is, this is not my swag at all. Like, Stickers and glittery rainbows and all that stuff. That's not me, but it's ours. And because it's ours, we all decorate it now. That's what we're saying, Jesus. We don't just want your kingdom to come. The prayer we're given is not just kingdom come. It's your will be done. You own it. You have property rights here so you can decorate it. Many of us want our lives decorated by God, but we don't let him own those lives. And God seems to be in the business of decorating things that he owns. And we don't want to be owned by the Lord unless we're consecrated unto him. Jesus, I don't just give you my heart. I give you my, my mind and my attention as well. We're going to begin this morning with a consecration prayer. We're basically praying three things. I'm going to invite you guys to pray this with me. Lord, we belong to you. Our hearts are yours. Our attention is yours. This time is yours. Would you pray that with me? Lord, we belong to you. Our hearts are yours. Our attention is yours. This time is yours. Let's pray it again. Lord, we belong to you. Our hearts are yours. Our attention is yours. This time is yours. Let's make it personal. And call to mind where your flesh already wants to get distracted, where the enemy's already trying to pull your attention elsewhere. And declare the opposite. Lord, I belong to you. My heart is yours. My attention is yours. This time is yours. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. If you guys are new to our church, we like to take our time walking through uh, the books of the Bible. So for the last four years, months, we've been in the book of (laughs) Hebrews. It's been great. No, we've loved it. It's been so good. 
the Revelation series was a lot, but this has been fantastic. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and, and the biblical author is doing something that we would think every biblical author is doing, but he's doing it in a unique way. He's trying to point our attention to Jesus, but then not just helping us see Jesus. He wants us to see through the lens of Jesus. And again, we would probably say that all the New Testament is trying to do that. But for so many of us, when we read the Bible, we think, okay, if I open up the, New, the Old Testament, it's a weird book. It's a little Game of Thronesy in some places. We're going to try our best to, to make sense of it. And so we're going to put Jesus in some of these places. And we're going to insert Jesus inside of some of the text. And what the Hebrew author is doing here is not saying, no, Jesus is not just in some of these moments. He's the point of all these moments. He's not just a part of it. He's the point of it. And so it's not saying insert Jesus here. It's saying look at this entire biblical landscape through the lens of Jesus. All of this is unto him. All of it is for him. All of it is through him. All of it's pointing to him. And it's not just doing that so that we can have a theological understanding of it. It wants us to live lives like that. I am for him. All of me is for him. All of me is unto him. All of me is through him. All of me is for him. It's trying to help us see through this lens so that we can live through this lens. And I'm not just a part of Jesus. He's not just a part of me. He is the entirety of who I am. The way it does this is it has this catchphrase all throughout the book of Hebrews. It's how much more. Can you guys say how much more? Let's try it again. How much more? Even loud. How much more? Somebody outdo Sheila. How much more? So good. <laughs> so good. No way. <laughs> no way. So this is said all throughout the book of Hebrews, about seven times the idea gets expressed. It's looking through a biblical lens and saying, yep, God was doing that, but that's just in part. To understand the fullness of it, you have to see it through the lens of Jesus. And it keeps saying, how much more, if that was what God was up to, how much more is he doing it now? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of what those parts were. You saw a part, now we're seeing the point. And so God would always try to save his people. And what always predated God's salvation is the message of the salvation which was to come. And that always came through angels or spirits or prophecy. And even though God would give them these words through angelic beings or through prophecy, the people would not be able to receive the gift of God. And so because they weren't able to receive God's gift, they weren't able to receive the word that came through the angels, there were consequences. And so Hebrews 2 says, how much more if we don't receive this word coming directly from Jesus, the word of God made flesh? Yeah, angels were saying one thing, but how much more is it important that we listen now because it's coming directly from Jesus? expresses this idea of God wanting to give us the gift of rest, to give us the same peace that he entered into on day seven. I want to invite you guys to shalom, to Shabbat, to resting. And they failed to enter into the promise. They couldn't receive God's gift. How much more can we now receive this gift if Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father saying, it is finished? Hebrews 4 is saying, that rest that they try to enter into, it still remains to be entered in. And so how much more can we now have rest in the Father because Jesus is right there next to him? He's visiting this idea of God wanting fellowship with us and to hang out with us. He wants to tabernacle and dwell with his people. It's a gift of relationship that God has always wanted. But we were so bent towards sin, we could not receive this gift. And so Hebrews 5 says, well, we needed a priest back then, but God is now showing us that Jesus is an even greater priest. How much more can he intercede for us? This priest that empathizes with us. Hebrews 9 talks about how we had to sacrifice offerings and give blood to somehow make us clean to receive fellowship with God. How much more can we be cleaned by the blood of Jesus been poured out for us? 
God wants covenant relationship with us. Hebrews 10 talks about how we were supposed to have this relationship, but even though we didn't receive the good gifts of covenant, there were consequences. And so how much more will we receive consequence if we reject the grace of Christ? You see what's happening over and over again? God trying to give a gift. His people are trash at receiving it. How much more is this gift being fulfilled in Jesus, and how much worse would it be if we don't receive Christ? How much more is being said over and over again? Now, now notice what we're seeing is that God did not just get nice in the New Testament. He's been trying to give gifts to his kids. How much more do we see it in Christ? Amen. But God has been trying to give gifts to his children. They're just not really great at receiving it. This idea of how much more gets fleshed out in Luke chapter 11, Jesus actually preaches about. uh, He's really playing a game uh, with his people. It's a game I've also played. It's called Either Or. He's saying, do you want this or that? When I was doing youth ministry, played games a whole bunch of times, and this is a game we played a lot. Basically, what we'd do is we'd say, hey, I want all the kids to line up in the middle of this row right here, and I'm going to put things on a screen. If you like this option, go to that side. If you like that option, go to that side. And the whole vibe is, once it goes on the screen, depending upon how much you like it, trample your friend to get to the side that shows which one you like. It's an awesome game. You should play it at home. And so we play either or. I'll show you guys what it looks like. So we'll put one thing on the screen, and we'd say, if you like sleeping in cold weather or if you like sleeping in the hot temperature, go to either side. So some kids are like, yo, I love sleeping when it's freezing. And other kids are like, I want to get super naked at night. And they all go to either side. <laughs> and we keep those kids far away from us when they go to that side. Then we let them choose, right? We put another one on the screen. We'll say, oh, which one can you not live without? Can you not live without Amazon or can you not live without Netflix? And some kids are like, yo. I got to watch a whole bunch of series. I got to binge watch stuff. Other kids are like, my parents pay for everything anyway. Need Netflix. So they choose which one's more important to them. We'll do a bunch of these. Like, which one's more important? Fruity candy or chocolate candy? What's more important? Sleeping or eating? I want to be right down the middle with that one. Like, both. And so we're, we're, we're putting up all these different ideas, letting them choose what's more important. Now, one of the greatest joys of my life was inviting these little Christian Texan kids to choose between Chick-fil-A and Whataburger. Ooh, you've never seen kids wrestle so hard. It's so good. Like, oh, Jesus, and chicken, but spicy ketchup, and come and take it. Like that little cultish Texas stuff in them. It's hard for them to choose. Hard to choose. The reason we play this game is to help expose the condition of the human heart. There are several things that are very easy for us to say, yep, that's me, I want that one. Either or, super simple. And then other things are really hard for us to choose what we actually like. There are some conflicting desires at war within our hearts. Sometimes I easily make good decisions, and other times I struggle to reconcile my wants. Paul actually echoes this in Romans chapter 7. He says, the good that I want to do, I don't always find myself doing. The bad that I don't want, I still find myself drawn to it. I am at war with myself, my spirit and my flesh. There is tension between my decisions. I have a mixed bag of a heart that wants good and bad. I want this and that. And it's hard for us. What it exposes is that for most of us in the room, the conversation of Jesus or the world is not an either-or conversation. We want Jesus and. We want Jesus plus other things. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to belong to him, but also I really like my plans. I like how I want to retire. I like how I want to vacation. I want to watch what I want to watch. I want to say what I want to say. And the reality is if I'm owned by him, I don't get that anymore. I don't. And this is a challenge, the tension we find in our hearts. We want Jesus, but we also want ourselves. When Jesus plays this game, he, he, he points out that same heart condition. 
He says, uh, uh, which of you guys, parents, want to give your kids uh, a fish or a snake? Either or. Pretty easy choice, right? Probably the fish. If your kid asked for an egg, which one would you want to give them, an egg or a scorpion? Again, pretty easy choice. I know the right decision. He says, but you guys have jacked up hearts. And so if you, being wicked, broken, conflicted parents, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does the father want to give good gifts to you? How much more are his intentions better than your intentions for yourself? Your heart's conflicted for even the good you want for you, and the father's like, nope, I only have good thoughts for you. I only have good intentions for you. I only want blessing for you. He's he's echoing this idea you see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. God says, test me in this. Try me out. Test my character. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that it will not be room enough for you to receive it. I will use all the content of heaven to decorate your life. I will pour all of my goodness, all of my hope, all of my heart onto you if you can receive it. Jesus says that God doesn't just want good gifts in mind. He actually wants the very best gift. Look at Luke 11, verse 13. How much more will the Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks? Not God saying, I'm just going to give you my good stuff. I'm going to give you me. The very nature of my character, the very fullness of my presence, I will pour my spirit onto you. The best I have to offer. The father has better intentions in mind for his children than they have for themselves. He has better intentions in mind for your life than you have for yourself. Problem is, issue is, only a consecrated people can receive the presence of God. Only a consecrated people can receive the spirit of God. God has a good gift that he wants to pour into your life. But can you receive it? Fun fact about preachers, uh, we tend to live all of our lives with this weird thought in the back of our head. We're looking for moments to preach about. It's just a thing. It's an occupational hazard. If you do something embarrassing around a preacher, he's going to talk about you later. I promise you. It's just a thing. And so most of us are, are, are looking at taking trips or going on adventures and have journeys that we later want to reflect on and pontificate on from a stage. A lot of guys do a bunch of weird stuff. They go on like trips to Jerusalem and walk off the beaten path and like, oh, I had an encounter with Jesus. And it's like, you just didn't obey your tour guide. But yeah, they do these things, but they're trying to have these unique experiences to talk about later. They go white water rafting. They look for adventurous uh, trips to take. They hike the Grand Canyon. They do a lot of things. They look for man stories to talk about how they overcame later on. And I, I'm a preacher, so I'm selfish. I do the same exact thing. And so I, a couple of years ago, I started to tell my wife, you know, you ever, you ever been hang gliding? You ever think about hang gliding? Isn't that cool? About parasailing. That's, that's a great idea, right? It's a good manly thing. I start to show her videos of hang gliding and parasailing every chance I get. I start talking about it around her so her phone can hear me talk about it. So I'm showing her ads. Like I'm, I'm doing my best to sow seeds. So one day, she gets the hint, Father's Day of 2021, right after COVID, she's like, babe, I got a gift for you. I was like, what? She said, I got you an all-expense-paid trip to go hang gliding. And I'm like, oh, what made you think of that? It's crazy. It's so good. (laughs) Fantastic gift. Now, this is like 2021, fresh off of COVID. I had not been working out, not been in shape. I have done nothing to prepare myself to go hang gliding. And so we see the fine print of this thing, and it says you have to make sure you don't weigh over 215 pounds. And I was like 240 at the time. So I had a beautiful gift, something that I wanted, anticipated, hoped for, that I literally could not take. A gift that I'd asked for that I could not receive. How much more does the Father want to give good gifts to you 
How much more has he always wanted to give good gifts to his people? They just struggled at receiving it. I think all of us find ourselves like this. An unconsecrated people cannot receive the gift of God because the gift of God is the very presence of God. And you have to be consecrated to be in his presence. Hebrews 12 actually picks up on this idea. He's going he's to keep having the conversation of Old Testament moments. And he's going to pull us to a conversation where God was literally saying, get consecrated. I'm about to show up. It's a moment out of Exodus 19. This is how Hebrew 12 summarized the whole thing, starting in verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Again, this is not saying let's look at Jesus in this moment. It's saying, no, look at this moment through the lens of Jesus. Help see what the point of the story is. This is a conversation all about being consecrated to the Lord. In Exodus, God told Moses, I'm about to come and hang out with you guys. I'm going to show up there so that all the people can hear me talking to you. They can trust you. They can build relationship and confidence in how you're about to lead them to this land of rest. I'm going to come and show up for the people that they might know that I am their God. Let me be near to them. Let me dwell with them. It's going to be awesome. Moses goes back, tells the people, and they catch wind of it, and they're excited about it. And so he says, there's three things that are about to happen. My presence is going to show up. Be prepared for it and make sure you have parameters around yourself. Presence, preparation, and parameters. He tells them there's going to be a day and a half before I show up. So take all of today, all of tomorrow, and make sure you guys are preparing yourselves. Don't eat things you're not supposed to eat. Make sure you're not having any sex. Don't wear certain clothes. Get prepared for my presence because I'm going to show up. Put parameters around you and the mountain because if you touch the mountain, you'll be put to death. This is actually supposed to be a good thing, and they're, like, terrified about God showing up. Moses actually gets quoted here from Deuteronomy 9, and the quote says that Moses was scared to death. He was trembling with fear. God's presence wants to show up and do life with his people, but note how fearful they are of it. And fear is not a motivator that drives them towards holiness. Fear actually drives them away. God is showing us here, Exodus, or Hebrews 12 is reminding us how much more, if we're actually going to be in the presence of the Lord, should we be prepared for it? Should we have parameters around our lives? Should we encounter the presence of God, but not through the lens of fear, through a different lens, through the lens of Jesus? Fear is an interesting motivator. It doesn't lead to holiness. When I was in school, I majored in mortuary science and embalming. I was going to be a funeral director. Um, I know. It's a very weird thing. Um, people often ask if I'm serious about that, and I say I'm dead serious, and I never mean that to be a pun. It's not supposed to be funny. It just is a thing I say. Uh, so I went to school. I was going to be a funeral director. I didn't grow up in a context where full-time ministry was a thing. And so the closest folks that I saw walk people with through grief and hard times and kind of worked at a church was funeral directors. And so I was like, I'll do that. So I go to school for it. Your last two years of funeral director school, you do what's called clinical. So you're actually working in a funeral home, touching dead bodies. It's weird, but it's a thing. And you learn a lot about the human body during this time. One thing I learned is that the human body is chock full of gas at all times. You are a gassy creature. You didn't even know. 
It's so nasty. And so at any given time, you have a lot of gas in you, and we tend to associate that with like passing gas, like farting or whatever. That's not the only way it comes out. It comes out all over. And when you die, your body loses its ability to like keep it in there, and it has to escape. So I have a professor named Dr. Harvey. Dr. Harvey tells us a story about how his, his first night working on deck was. And so on deck means you're by yourself in the funeral home with a bunch of bodies. And you're supposed to fill out paperwork and make sure you clean up and all this stuff. So, so Harvey's there, and he's, he's doing his thing. He's, he's filling out papers, and nobody's out. All the bodies are kind of put up except for one old lady. She's sitting on the table, and he's doing his job. And then some gas starts to leave her body without him knowing it was gas. And so it's just really quiet, and he's doing his paperwork, and he's by himself with a bunch of dead bodies in the middle of the night. <laughs> and he hears... And he quits his job right there. <laughs> Scares him to death, but he's like, no, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tripping. I'm just around a bunch of death right now. I'm a little nervous. It's my first night. Maybe my mind's playing tricks on me. He turns on the radio, tries to get back to work, and he hears it over the radio again. <sighs> and he runs through a wall. He leaves right then and there. No, he doesn't go. He actually sticks it out. He's like, maybe somebody's playing tricks on me. So he's, he's opening doors. He's looking under cabinets. He's like, what in the world is making this sound? He looks up a granny on the table, and he's like, nah, surely not. That's not, that's not what we're doing, Jesus. I, I gave my life to you. You wouldn't do me like that. And so he's like, all right, I'm, 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 I'm tripping. Cuts the music back on. He's going to work. He hears it again. <sighs> Turns the music off. He looks at the granny. He's like, no way. He walks a little close to her. She doesn't move, gets a little closer. She's still sitting there. He's like leaning over her right now, nothing. He's like, okay, I'm sweating, I'm tripping. I'm gonna get back to work. Now, I am of the belief that Granny like ate Taco Bell before she died or something like that. <laughs> She's about to turn around, all the gas just comes out of her and it goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and he died right there, that's the... <laughs> No, nah, he, he quit the profession, became a professor. That's how I got him in my classes. So he, he, he's terrified of this moment. I think all of us would say working with dead bodies or not, just the idea of death and being too close to it, it's freaky. Most of us want to get as far away from it as we possibly could. I was on campus telling folks I majored in embalming, and they would, like, not shake my hand anymore. They'd be like, what's wrong with you? And I would say many things. But anyway, so the idea of being close to death is a frightening thing. Look at what happens if you get close to the mountain of God. You get put to death, you die. Fear is the governor and death is the medium. And so no one's drawing near to the presence of God. No one's excited about being near the Lord because there's, there's all this death and fear associated with being God's presence. Because we are broken people who cannot receive the beauty of his holiness. We can't be in his presence because of sin. Yes. So death is the consequence for being in the presence of a holy God. Amen. Now, when Jesus died, that crushed all the hopes and beliefs of his people. Because that thing that seemed ultimate, that seemed like it would never be beat, that thing that seemed like an ultimatum, the consequence for life, the biggest and heaviest thing that we would all face, it got our king. Snuffed him out. They lost all hope and they had nothing but despair because Jesus, who they placed all their hope in, had died. So the message of the early church was not, we have good morals. We vote well. We have good potlucks. That wasn't the message of the early church. The early church's message was, that dude was dead and he's alive now. Yeah, 
He's resurrected. The worst thing that could possibly happen is not the worst thing anymore. Death doesn't have a sting. The grave is not final. Our king came back to life and is giving life to us again. There is rest on the other side of death. There is glory in his presence. God is alive. Now, now think about what that does to a community. It shifts their entire perspective. I no longer approach the throne passively or fearfully. I approach the throne boldly. Because I'm invited to the presence of a king who is alive, not governing me by fear, but by his faithfulness. It's not shame and fear that pushes me towards him. It's his faithfulness and his goodness. Not a God of death, but a living God. Look at how it keeps going in in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 22. You've not come to Mount Sinai. You've come to the mountain of Zion, to the city of who? The living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn. Remember, fear made them think, okay, we're going to worship the Lord. But as soon as Moses goes, they stop worshiping the Lord. They start worshiping a bull because they're afraid of of God, but they can control a bull. They can control an idol. So it's saying you not come to a mountain of folks that could not praise. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. They can't stop worshiping God. They can't stop crying out holy. They can't stop speaking of his faithfulness because fear is not governing them. The loving presence of God is. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In Genesis 4, Abel's blood cries out about a wrong being done. What this thing is saying here is that Jesus' blood is crying out about how all wrongs have been corrected. There's a better word being spoken from the blood of Jesus saying, don't cower in fear. You're invited in. You're invited into the presence of the Lord whose blood has cleaned you and invited you to relationship. You're invited to be a consecrated people. How much more? If they had to be consecrated because of fear, how much more should we be consecrated because of faithfulness? That fear is not going to govern us better than his goodness will. And so what is a consecrated life? It's the same exact thing that, Paul, or that, that Moses laid out for the people. It's to live a life with parameter. It's to say, I can only get this close to these things, and I can only get that close to those things. It's a life with boundaries. It's a life of preparation, expecting the presence of God. It's a life with my heart postured towards his goodness. Now, now parameters doesn't sound all that attractive to us. One of the worst things you could tell me is no, and dare not tell me to say no to myself. Last week, my wife and I were on a cruise, and we saw people eat way more food than they possibly should ever eat. Drink way more than they should ever drink. And, and, and I'll be honest with you guys. The idea of parameter, the idea of saying no to myself was, was a weird idea. Like, I was dreaming about getting on the boat. A couple of weeks ago, we decided we were going to go on the cruise, and so I, I'm going to do this, like, diet thing, this 80-20 situation where it's like I eat 80% of my food. It's for fuel. I'm eating healthy. Only 20% is for enjoyment. And I'm saying this with confidence because I know that when I get on the boat, that thing's going to flip. I'm, I may eat a piece of lettuce once, but I'm about to go crazy. And I'm working out. I'm, I'm, I'm like most people. Like, I worked out for two weeks. I'm looking for abs. Like, I'm... <laughs> doesn't work that way. But what does happen is you get on the boat and you've been, I've been living into this idea of like actually putting good fuel in my body. And so what didn't happen is I instantly got abs, but what did happen is my appetite was curbed, where I had a little bit more self-control and self-discipline to say, I don't need to indulge that way. Also, I don't want to be drunk. I don't want to be vomiting food up. Like this doesn't seem attractive anymore. Why? Not because I have willpower. It's because I'm not my own anymore. 
This is literally what scripture says. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know your bodies are temples, consecrated buildings for the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you? He lives in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You have a life with parameters now. You can't just do what you want to do. You're not your own. And that doesn't sound attractive because you think, I belong to somebody. That's not great. But, but if you look at it from the gift of what it is, it's saying, no, you don't belong with the, with the lens of fear. You belong to God. It's good. You get to belong home. You're, you're invited to be a temple for the living God to dwell inside of you. Amen. It's a better trade-off than being drunk. Amen. It's a better trade-off than, than giving your body to things that aren't actually healthy for you. Amen. It's better to be property. To live a life of preparation, to, to expect the goodness of God to govern your steps. Psalm 37, 23 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his ways. And to have a bit of an anticipation built up on how God wants to govern me. Maybe he has better intentions for me than I have for myself. Maybe he wants better for me than I want for myself. To have preparation. I'm, I'm now looking for the voice of God to speak. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, I led a, a workshop with a lady named Tammy Hutchins. Tammy Hutchins was a, a missionary in India. She was 19 years old, and the Holy Spirit told her to go and be a missionary, to start an orphanage in India. And she was 19 with no, like, governance, so she said yes and went and did that thing. And so she spent 27 years in India just listening to the voice of God. She starts an orphanage. She adopts, I think it was like 130 kids or some crazy mess like that. It was like, how in the world do you know how to do this? She has all these ideas for systems and for governing and for using like Indian law and kind of weaving her way into being able to share the gospel, even though you weren't allowed to share the gospel. A year and a half ago, she got deported for her faith. And I'm like, that just sounds dope. Like you got deported for loving Jesus? Like they couldn't deal with you? You're making such an impact for the kingdom of God? Rock on. That's amazing. So I'm looking at this woman and I'm hearing, I'm like, yo, maybe she went to seminary. She learned all this stuff. Like, how did you learn to do all these things? And she said, I woke up every single morning and listened to the voice that told me to go there. And I just lived my life saying, God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live? She didn't go because she was on fire for orphanages. She went because she was obeying the voice of Jesus. She lived in preparation, not of plans or schemes. She lived in preparation to hear God speak again. And he did. And he was faithful to, to pour out his love and his ministry. Her, what she did was she kind of postured her heart like Mary postured her heart towards Jesus at the wedding, where Jesus is like, I ain't about to turn that water into wine, Mom. And she's like, cool, whatever he says, do it. <laughs> Live in preparation for what he's about to say. And, and then have the kind of parameters around your life that says, I'm going to govern myself to do whatever he says. A consecrated life is not a life that does all these big, impressive things for God. A consecrated life is a life that's waiting on the voice of God and obeys what he says. Amen. That's living into consecration, yes. posturing our heart around his presence. Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I ask, Lord, this is all I seek. Not a part of what I seek, the whole totality of what I am seeking every single day. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Yes. Gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Seek him in his holy temple. If your flesh is like my flesh, yes. it starts to hijack the conversation a bit and say, well, maybe, maybe you can do a couple of things to look more consecrated. You can pretend to be more consecrated. You can start beefing up your spiritual resume. You can start telling folks, yeah, you got deported from Spring, Texas, and <laughs> just couldn't deal with you. 
You can start beefing up your, your, how you present yourself, and you can look more consecrated. And I actually had that kind of envy. When I was hearing Tammy share her stories, I was like, y'all want stories like that? I want to be perceived that way. And God just started quickening my heart. He was like, you, you like the idea of looking like you belong to me more than you like the idea of belonging to me. And he gives me this chastising word, not out of anger and fear, but out of love and invitation. He's inviting us to be actually owned by him. Verse 25 keeps going. It says, see to it that you do not refuse, not people, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we? There it goes. Like how much more, how much less language. If we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will not shake the earth only, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate that removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken will remain. It's a bit of a hard word for us, but God is saying, I'm actually quoting Haggai here. God is saying that I am willing to shake things that get in the way of the point. And if you would allow me, I'll actually shake them off of you for your better. A consecrated people are people who have one thing. That's all they have. I have you and you alone. This is all I seek to dwell in your house forever. And everything else is filtered through that one thing. Jesus is no longer a part of me. He's just the point. So everything else that's a part shakes it off. It's a hard word to receive. It's actually harder when you read it where it comes from. It comes from Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 1 actually has his whole heart posture where it's like, it's convicting his people. It's really convicting us as well. So you guys are, are sowing a whole bunch, but you're reaping very little. You're eating a whole bunch, but your stomachs are never full. You're drinking a whole bunch, but you're still parched. You wear a bunch of clothes and you're not warm. You're making a bunch of money and you're putting it in pockets that have holes in them. Look at what this is actually doing for your life and, and tell me, is it worth it? Are you not more empty? Yes. Maybe you probably are meant to be more Maybe life's more than retirement. Maybe life is more than, than how people perceive you. Amen. What if there's more on the other side? There's a, uh, a myth, a slave myth, uh, Letters of Willie Lynch. Has, uh, it's a very interesting story. So there's a, they used to do these conferences for slave owners way back in the day. It's a really weird practice, but they did. They have a bunch of slaves trying to escape, or they have issues with, like, slaves stealing crops and all this kind of stuff. And so these slave owners would get together, and they'd, they'd try to learn from each other's best practices as to how to best, you know, manipulate and really abuse your slaves. And all these slave owners would say, well, you just got to beat them harder, or you got to uh, restrict how often they can interact with each other. There's a guy named Willie Lynch who shows up, and he starts to say, I have a better way. This is how we can not only enslave them, but we can enslave them for generations. All we have to do is give them stuff. And not just all of them. Give a certain group of them stuff. Maybe the lighter-skinned slaves, or maybe the house slaves. Just give one group a lot, and then point out to the other group how they don't have as much. Make the lower envious of those that have. Make those that have more protective of the stuff that they have, and they're now fearful of those of lower caste. What he says is going to do is going to instill in them generational mentalities that hoard the little, that observe all of their belongings. Lynch says, if they're so concerned with what belongs to them, they'll pay very little attention to the fact that they belong to somebody. Get them really concerned with what they can own, Get them really concerned with what they belong, what belongs to them. 
so that they don't pay attention to the fact that they're slaves and they belong to somebody. This is us. This is not just black folks. This is all of us. We all have a hyper focus on what we're planting, on what we're eating, on what we're wearing, on how we clothe ourselves, what money we can put in our pockets. And God's saying there's holes in those pockets anyway. Assess, is this really good for your life? Fixating your life on what belongs to you, or is it better that you find your life postured in belonging to me? Not to be property, but to be a possession, a prized possession. One that Jesus says in Matthew 13, the father will sell everything he has just to own the rights to dig for this possession. God has good gifts in mind for you. In mind for our consecrated people. This is how Hebrews wraps up, and we'll wrap up the same way. Hebrews 12, verse 26. At that time, the voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, taking away things that don't matter. Earthly things, things that are our belongings, he will take them away. That's a gift from God. He will take away things that I'm obsessed with, that I might see that he's obsessed with me. And that he's a better obsession. Taking away created things so that what cannot be shaken is all that remains. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What sin likes to do is to point out how unconsecrated we are and try to get us to fix it hyper-fixated on our attention and what we can do and our obedience. It's never the gospel's aim. The gospel's aim is not to say how bad we are. It's to say how good God is and to show what he's up to. Notice it never says, you got to figure out how to shake all that stuff off of you. It says, no, God is doing the shaking. We simply receive and respond with reverence and awe. God, shake me. Shake off of me the ways in which I don't belong to you. Break me if necessary. There's a Greek philosopher named Nikos Kazantzakis. He says there's three souls in a prayer for each. The first soul prays, Lord, I am a bow in your hand. Pull me or else I rot. If my life is not found in your purposes and your intentions and your plan, I am aimless. I am pointless. If you don't pull me, I'm rotting away anyway. I felt that before. You probably have too. A hunger for more than just this American dream. A hunger for more than just this plans of our parents. A hunger for more than just what we see on TV. God, if I don't have your hand on me, I'm going to rot away. Pull me. Use me. Shape me. Consecrate me for your purposes. Have you felt that before? Nico says there's a second soul and it prays, Lord, don't overdraw me because I might break. Like, I like the idea of belonging to you, but I still got my plans and my agenda. I want my heart to belong to you, but I still want my tongue to do whatever it wants to do. I want my heart to belong to you, but I don't want my eyes to have to change what I watch. I really want to watch that, and so just be cool with that. I want my heart to belong to you, but I still have my agendas, my vacations, my retirement, my budgets, how I want to govern my life. Don't mess with that. Don't overdraw me. Don't make me one of those weird Christians with bare feet and speaking in tongues and stuff. I don't want to be one of those. Make me a cool Christian. Leather jackets and stuff. One of those. I think that that word from Haggai would convict that heart posture and say, how well is that working out anyway? 
Your pockets have holes in them. They'll never be fulfilled there. Nico says, the last soul prays, overdraw me, Lord. Who cares if I break? Shake me so much that, I, that all the stuff that's not supposed to remain just comes off. Overdraw me. Let me find myself in your heart and your purposes. I think we're invited to have one of three responses here this morning. The, the first one is, Lord, I'm a bow in your hand. Grant me a hunger for purpose in you. Grant me a desire. Asking God, you are faithful to give your spirit to those who ask. So I'm asking, bestow upon me your spirit. Give me a hunger to be used by you. If that's not your response this morning, I think confession is a great place to be honest with the Lord and say, God, I have placed my agenda, my belongings, my plans, and my purposes over being owned by you. And I confess it. I'm honest about it that you might deal with me. And if you are already at a point where you're overdrawn, I think the response that the Hebrews gives us is to worship with reverence and awe. God is a consuming fire. Not fearful of being burned. I want to burn in you. Consume me more. I worship you because you're the one that's done this in me. We're invited to belong. Not just like property, but to belong like you get to come home. You have a space here. You're invited in. 